Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day will be celebrated potentially by husbands everywhere because science now has proven that you should sleep naked. And the reason for that is that by wearing pajamas, you're probably interrupting your body's natural decline in temperature that's part of your nightly circadian rhythm. And also, when you cool down at night, it means you increase growth hormones and you decrease cortisol, which means you get better sleep, reduce belly fat, and uh, more sexy time. So uh, that was probably my favorite cool fact of the day in 300 episodes or so. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Now, today's guest is a friend, a guy whose work I greatly respect and uh, an innovator in the space, sort of one, one of the, the founding uh, founding fathers of the whole way of thinking for paleo. And if you're watching on the YouTube channel, you already recognize him probably. It's none other than Mark Sisson. If you're a longtime listener, you know Mark's been on Bulletproof Radio, but it's actually been too long. He's a paleo ancestral health expert and endurance athlete and author of the best-selling Primal Blueprint. 
if you read the notes in the back of the Bulletproof Diet, you'll note that I thanked Mark for his work in the acknowledgement section because his stuff is legit, including Mark's Daily Apple, which gets 3 million visitors a month, which is uh, his blog. And he's certainly a, a biohacker. And, and the reason I've invited him back on the show is that he just came out with a really cool new book called Primal Endurance. And I wanted to dig in with him because he is both a biologist by training, uh, endurance athlete, and just an ass kicker in all things. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Good to see you again. What made you write a book about primal <laughs> endurance? Like, I thought you like did heavy lifting, and you know, you, you go you go swimming out there in Malibu and all this. What, what, you know, what? it's no, it's really interesting <laughs> because for the longest time, I sort of, um, you know, I was an endurance athlete for yeah. most of my career, and that's how I learned a lot of what I know about fitness and diet and exercise and training. But over the past decade, I've spent a fair amount of time um, taking back sort of all the stuff I said about training right. and and uh, decrying the concept of of uh, training for marathons and okay. and long chronic distance cardio. triathlons. Yeah. Chronic cardio. So chronic cardio became a, a term that Art Devaney and I coined uh, about 11 years ago now to sort of describe this activity that so many endurance athletes, myself included in the old days, uh, undergo, which is basically training at a heart rate that's about 75 to 80 percent of your max heart rate uh, for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. And that and a lot of a lot of endurance athletes thinks think that's where you need to train. And as a result, we saw um, I saw it personally, um, my career basically evaporated because I overtrained. Yeah. But then I saw it in athletes that I was coaching. Uh, people train too hard and they train too long and they and they weren't getting the results that they that they said they wanted. Uh, so I started writing all these negative things about endurance training, <laughs> and I started, you know, kind of going, you know, almost, uh, you know, uh, rhetorically, why would you want to do that? You know, why right. would you want to run a marathon and beat your body up and and incur all these the, aches and pains? The first marathoner died, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it really didn't bode well for the rest of us. But, but you know, uh, and and then. Uh, as I got into the lifestyle of the Primal Blueprint and I started talking about all the ways in which we uh, naturally uh, uh, improve endurance by moving around a lot at a low level of activity and only lifting heavy things once in a while and only sprinting like once a week, but really going all out, not just doing intervals, but really kind of going all out. I started to think a couple of years ago, you know, there's a lot of new technology now, mm -hmm. uh, the ability of the body to burn fat, which we assumed for the longest time was was very limited, and we really had to rely on carbohydrate if we were going to be at all competent in endurance competition. Right. That sort of changed. This whole concept of utilizing ketones instead of glucose and allowing the brain to, to access ketones during an endurance contest yeah. and to not feel like you have to shut down, uh, that new technology sort of, sort of hit. Uh, and then some other technologies with heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Brock knows a lot about that. I mean, oh, we, yeah. so we started to talk, we started to kind of my, my, um, the guy who I coached for years, who was the number three triathlete in the world, who later became the head of my publishing company. We started to think, well, maybe there's a, there's a way in which we can teach people, coach people to train for these endurance contests where they don't get beat up, where they don't yeah. get burned out, where they don't get overtrained, where they don't get sick all the time, where they don't get injured. And that's what sort of begat the concept of this book, Primal Endurance. Well, that that is a, an epic biohack, and and the way I've I've defined biohacking is is changing the environment around you and inside you, so you have control of your biology. And and I I just I love your perspective on this, Mark. Because like, look, I did it, 
I realized it wasn't good for me, but I still wanted to do it, so I'm going to do it anyway, but I'm going to make it good for me, right? That is absolutely grabbing life by the throat and saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and, and uh, like great respect for that perspective. And I, I used to be a, a long-distance cyclist, even though I, I weighed... I don't know how much I weighed at the time, but it, I was carrying at least 50 extra pounds that weren't the, the frame of my road bike. Right. <laughs> they were kind of my love handles. And this is even as a teenager when I was trying to lose weight and getting stretch marks and all. And I, I remember that feeling of bonking you know, when, when you're like, I didn't eat enough muffins. <laughs> like, what am I going to do? And it's so horrible. Uh, and I, I never did lose weight from, from that approach, uh, even though I, I'm sure I did some, some beneficial things and probably some harmful things too. Uh, but here we are, uh, for me, that's 25 years ago, and, and you're writing a book now that says, actually, with the right changes, you can do things. And, and how endurance are, are ultra marathons? Is this part of the part of the plan, marathons? No, absolutely. I mean, okay. uh, well, for me, personally, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm out. I'm, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> me too, not, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not uh, interested in competing anymore. Yeah. Um, I, was a, I was a very good endurance athlete. Mm-hmm. I finished fifth in the U.S. National Championships in the marathon in 1980. I went on to finish fourth at Ironman in Hawaii. That was sort of the pinnacle of my um, success. Actually, one, then, then I also set the world record on the Versa Climber, you know, that, that yeah. climbing machine yeah. in the gym for the mile climb uh, in my late wow. 30s. Uh, so I, I, was, I was that aerobic endurance beast. But what I recognized was that uh, most of my training was contemplated. I was training myself to hurt and be able yeah. to handle it. I wasn't training myself to be efficient. And that's what's changed. What's changed has, has been this notion that, that if we can, if we can um, alter our environment to upregulate genes that uh, assist us in burning fats more efficiently, more cleanly, that we can increase uh, mitochondrial biogenesis, actually increase the amount of mitochondria yes. that we have. That's so uh, big. Increase, it's huge. Increase the efficiency of those mitochondria because mitochondria have their own DNA that respond yep. to these signals. Uh, if we can, um, so we can put more fat through, we can unburden the body of having to take in exogenous, huge amounts of exogenous carbohydrate, which then lowers our, uh, uh, the, the load of free radical damage that we would otherwise incur putting so much sugar through the body. So all these things kind of come together. They converge to create an opportunity for people who are going to be going at, um, at, at a relatively high rate of output. So what we like to talk about is, you know, you, we this really applies well to ultra marathoners and century riders and triathletes. We know there are people who are setting records now, training ketogenically, training with this methodology that we're using uh, to to set personal best for sure, but also starting to set world records. Yeah. And those distances are coming down. So now, while it, we said, well, it certainly applies to people who are just going to be burning fat over 12 hours or 15 hours. Now it's applying to people who are going to be burning fat predominantly over two hours. Like I think the next breakthrough in marathoning, in world record marathon, will come from a ketogenic athlete who yeah. has put the time in because it's a long adaptation process at the elite level. You get 80% of your benefits in the first 21 days, and then the next 10% might take six months, and the final 10% might take another year to kick in. So if you're an elite athlete, you know, you have to factor that into your career and how much are you willing to, to, to take a year off and train this way to come back and be stronger than all your peers. But if you're, an, if you're a, a citizen athlete, if you're an age group athlete, why not start this like right away? Sure. And get more efficient at your at your ability to perform work at a high level, a relatively high level of output by con- by 
by being more efficient from the work you did in the gym, training sustained power, from the work you did uh, at the training table by, by eating more fat and cutting back on simple sugars and, and other carbs like that, uh, and by being really, really smart about the time you spend actually training in the field. So you've rejected consistency for, for training and, and you've, you've added huge amounts of variability into it. Yeah. So, you know, I think my, I'm a skeptic. I'm a cynic, actually. I'm more than this. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, no, screw uh, those skeptics. They're not strong uh, enough. They can do better. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I question just about everything. Yeah, and certainly that's what got me my moniker at, uh, you know, at Mark's Daily Apple and, and, and the things that I've written because I question authority and I question conventional wisdom. And so when we look at, um, you know, all of the, the variables in putting together a training program, it turns out that, that humans are fractal, that fractal, that our, that our behavior patterns uh, were fractal over millions of years, that our body adapts to that fractalness almost better than it does to a rote metronomic consistency. So just as a general rule of thumb, one of the, one of the little bullet points on the book is, um, you know, uh, be more inconsistent with your training to race more consistently well. Uh, and what we mean by that is just if you have a, a training calendar is laid out. And here's what I'm going to do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And I have all my workouts planned for the next two months. We don't, we haven't built in a lot of the necessary variability to account for what happens when you wake up one morning and you don't feel right. You know, you're still going to go do that workout. You're going to take the day off. Are you going to utilize the, the strategies of heart rate variability to sort of give you clues as to what you ought not or ought not do? Conversely, maybe you have a day, you know, plan where it's an easy day and you're just feeling like you're jumping, chomping at the bit. There's, there's no reason why you maybe couldn't put the Friday workout that was going to be a really hard workout today, which is, which is Tuesday. You know, so, so we, 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 what we're teaching is we're teaching an intuitive ability of each person to sort of dig down and understand how the body works and, and grok how the enzyme systems work and how training works so that you can, you can intuitively train to your maximum potential given the variables of how much time you spend working, how much time you want to spend with your family, you know, your genetic sort of uh, just your genetic limits, because some people are just, you know, not going to run a two hour and 20 minute marathon. Um, and but we're trying to teach through the book. Here's how you can set up a, a strategy that, that, you know, all these different variables and you can insert them into your own personal equation and come out with the ideal outcome. Uh, when I was, I don't know, 22 I had had three knee surgeries, and the doctor said, "You know, you're you're lucky you can you can really walk." And actually, I don't have two knee surgeries. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to lose this like hundred pounds. So I started working out an hour and a half a day, forty five minutes of cardio, forty five minutes of maximum output weights, six days a week. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't care if I'm sick. I don't care if I only slept two hours. I'm going to go to the gym. Like it, it's it's what I do. And I, I got kind of addicted to it. And I did this for like 18 months. And at the end of the 18 months, I could bench press all my friends. And I was still fat. Like I, I didn't lose any weight. I got strong. And, and I, I've seen this. Uh, my, my friend Alex Lightman in Santa Monica, he's, you know, he can run two hours a day. And he's 78 pounds of fat on him that he can't yep. get rid of with that strategy. And you talk about this, this recovery thing and all that. Back then, no one talked about about how varying based on how you feel or taking a rest day or getting extra sleep, how that was going to make any difference. Yeah. 
So when did you first start really realizing this? Like, was yeah, this so in, in, at that time in the 80s when you were winning or was this way after? No, that? no, no. So what, so it, it, it really kicked in. I retired in 82 and I took five years off of any sort of training hard okay. and I became a personal trainer. And because I'd, I'd done Ironman, I had sort of a cachet about me and I could yeah. command in the early 80s, I could command 100 bucks an hour to train people. So that was great money in those days. Oh, yeah. As we say in Malibu, some people could live on that in those days. And, uh, uh, but it was what I was doing was I was walking or I was jogging 13 minute miles with my clients okay. who, you know, who were not, they were maybe housewives looking to lose weight or they were uh, businessmen looking to just sort of become more efficient at what they did. But they weren't necessarily trying to be world class athletes. They were just trying to, to get into, a, into shape. I had certainly, I dialed in part of the diet. So I was able to, to give them the wisdom of the dietary advice that became the primal blueprint. But it was it was my training four hours a day at a very low level of this activity. And then once a week, I would go to the track and I would do my workout. And it would just be a 20 minute or a 30 minute interval session. Five years later, I wind up coaching an elite team of triathletes that travels around the world. And right. we're, the, we're the best in the world. And I'm the coach. I'm already old by then. And I get into some of the races with these guys, and I'm keeping up with them. And I'm going, How, wait a minute. I took five years off of just doing easy stuff. I didn't. All I did was my own workout once or twice a week. I did some stuff in the gym. I reconfigured my diet. But I'm, I'm as fit now as I was when I called myself an elite athlete, and now I'm an old coach. I'm in my, I'm in my late 30s now, and I'm, and I'm entering world championship. I won my, you know, my age group in, the, in, a, in a world championship duathlon at the Desert Princess. And and uh, finished 11th overall. So it was like, okay, that was the light that went on in my head was that there was really something to this low level training combined with the occasional all out really hard training that made me, first of all, made me sane, kept me sane because I wasn't, I wasn't putting in 30 hours a week of, of 75 to 85% heart rate all the time. I wasn't training myself simply to hurt because that was, that had been the old the, the old way of training was you go out and you do an hour run or a two hour run. And, uh, and you know, if your heart rate's at 80 or 85% of your max, you're basically training yourself to, to withstand that in a race when you finally get to uh, a competition. But what you're not doing in that case is you're not training your body to burn fat. You're not training your body to burn, to become more efficient. You're simply training your brain to withstand the pain and you're, and you're overtraining your heart. We now, we now yeah. know. You're literally damaging your heart if you're doing that amount of hard training all the time. So um, it was it was that combination of seeing what a low level of consistent, consistently low level activity would still generate aerobic benefits and make me more efficient when I when I finally did get into racing. That's really when the when the light went on. And that was, again, back in like 80, 85 or 86. It's almost 30 years ago. It, it seems like like. Training yourself to tolerate suffering is is kind of a, a badge of <clears throat> like it's a badge of courage, you know. It, it it's what you can do, and, and I find that if you want to take a, an obese person and get them to work out every day, <laughs> especially without changing their diet, yeah. they will be suffering athletes, and that they will be really good at tolerating suffering and setting aside the pain and doing it anyway. But when you do it right. It's not supposed to be suffering. So, like, I've developed an intolerance to suffering in that I have yeah. a high capacity for suffering. I just don't want to do it. And I believe if I'm suffering, I'm probably not doing it as effectively as I could. Like, it's a useful signal. 
It's a great signal, and yeah. and that's exactly right. It's it's you know there's a little a little bit of suffering has to enter the equation yeah. if you want to be good. But right. I'm talking about a little bit. I'm not talking about practicing suffering every day. And, and it's not it's, suffering for suffering's sake. I'm a good person because I'm put. You're like no, I just so many, but, 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 no, but yeah. so many people use that. Yeah. I'm a good person because I went to the gym. Right. And I don't. And 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 uh, you know God is punishing me because <laughs> I'm not losing weight and I'm yeah. putting all the time in. I mean, I, I talk about it for, uh, for years. I've talked about all the people I know at the gyms that I go to that have gone to the, they run the treadmill 45 minutes, five days a week, and they still got the tw- same 25 pounds to lose, except that they're now, they're a little bit more jiggly and they're a little bit, you know, it's actually worse. Yeah. Um, and it, it shouldn't be that way. But people get caught up. And this is, this is one of the hacks that we talk about in, in um, you know, it is addictive. It's addictive because when you do that high high level heart rate training on a daily basis, which the body recognizes is not healthy and should not be doing, you create endorphins. Mm-hmm. Endorphins are not some wonderful, you know, god molecule that that we should all be seeking on a regular basis to make us feel good. Endorphins are a survival mechanism. Endorphins <laughs> evolved yeah. when on the you're being chased down the veldt or the plains by an animal and you've 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 survived thus far but now you're cowering up in a tree and you want to survive rather than just give up like a deer in the headlights endorphins are supposed to make you feel good to be able to overcome and get to the next to, to the next level of survival yeah they were you know far be it for me to dictate what what evolution had in mind but my my sense is that that endorphins were to be deployed on a very infrequent basis uh, as a survival mechanism, yeah. um, because if you were in the old in the old days, if you were in a survival situation every day, you were dead after a while. It was a numbers game that was yeah. going to take you down. So this this idea that we chase endorphins, we're chasing the runners high. <laughs> it's bad news. It's, it's a false economy. It's addictive. It's it's it, and it's also the reason. By the way, it's a reason why so many substance abusers gravitate to endurance athletics. Yeah. Because it's replacing one addiction with another, and it's a, and it, and they're and they're we're still talking about opiates. You know, it's just an, an yeah. endogenous opiate versus one that you shoot up. Right. So anyway, so that's my my take on, on this whole concept of, you know, pain and suffering. And I'm a good person because I go to the gym. And why can't I lose a weight because I'm going to the gym? Well, the reason you can't lose the weight when you're going to the gym, if you're, especially if you're working hard on a daily basis, is because you're burning sugar. Yes. You go to the gym, you're, you're raising your heart rate so high that you're burning mostly the glycogen that's stored in your muscles or some of the gel packs that you're taking. You're, you're locking the you're locking the fat into the fat cells. It can't get out, uh, and as a result, you get home and you say, "Well, I just spent forty five minutes or an hour and a half on the treadmill. I need to replenish my glycogen so that I can go do it again tomorrow." And it's this vicious cycle of of depleting sugar, going then going home and eating more carbohydrate to replenish sugar so that you can go do it again and burn more calories. But over time. The brain is wired to try and sort of overcompensate for that insult that you gave it that day. And so there's a tendency, unless you're really a gifted endurance athlete and you're a, you know, a, a 5'11", 132-pound man who's a, who's a marathoner, um, the tendency for the, is for the body over time to, to add that, those excess calories as fat. So even though you're in the gym doing the work and you're sweating and you're burning calories, because you haven't trained your body to burn off its excess fat, and you become de- so dependent on sugar, it, you just it's it's this cycle down which you this is rat hole down which you fall. There's a a, a few outspoken uh, 
like sports trainer people who are still screaming about caloric burden, uh, usually screaming in sort of like a, I have high cortisol because I'm not feeding myself well sort of voice. Um, what do you say to the, the people who go out there saying, you know, it, it's about the calories, it's about the calories? <laughs> well, it's not about the calories. It's about, it's about efficiency. It's about, yeah. it's, about, um, it's about how do you take those calories and convert them to energy. Yes, and, it's efficiency. And it's efficiency. And what, we, what we've seen with, um, the, with primal endurance is the way, like the way we train when we're actually doing aerobic training, whatever you want to call it, cardio or aerobic or whatever, it's, it's at a rate – that is the highest possible rate you can go as the limiter um, at which you can still put mostly oxygen through your body and not accumulate lactic acid. Mm -hmm. And that heart rate has been determined generally to be 180 minus your age. So, for instance, I'm 62. So 180 minus 62 is 118. Uh, so I would limit my training heart rate to 118. Now, I might give myself three or four beats a minute because of my history of, of, of having trained hard enough to do this. But that's, that is so, so ridiculously low compared to what I used to race and train at. 180. <laughs> so when I set the world record for the Versa Climber, I held 186 beats a minute. I wore a heart monitor. Wore 180, uh, 186 beats a minute for 22 minutes. Have, um, you, have you ever measured your ejection fraction? Um, not recently. It was... It's not, it's, but at that heart rate, it's the ejection fraction isn't even that significant. It's, it's tiny. tiny. So right. yeah, it, it's, it's tiny. It, it almost has to be small when your heart yeah. is beating that yeah. fast. Okay. So, uh, and when you're on the Versa Climber, it's kind of unique because you're actually, you can get a higher heart rate than you would running or cycling because you're using legs and arms and you're pumping, you're pumping blood up and down mm -hmm. and the heart's just like maxed out. And, and you're not getting the, the gravity shock, which also has to be compensated for, right? Correct. Correct. So... So that was the, I used to train, I used to race at, at ridiculously high heart rates. Um, so for me to train at 118, it's like, whoa, I mean, that's just so low that when I started doing it, um, if I were to, if I were to use that as a limiter and say, I'm going to limit myself to 118, I might have been running 13 minute miles. Now I could run 520s, but I was burning mostly sugar and I could do that at 170 beats a minute or 180 beats a minute. But for me to hold 118 and, and use that as a max, and use the limiting factor, the amount of oxygen I could put through my body, that almost, that, that dictated how much fat I could burn. And if I wasn't burning much fat, then I couldn't use the oxygen that I was putting through my body efficiently. And as a result, I was limited in how fast I could go. So when we build efficiency, we use that, that heart rate, which is basically the highest amount of oxygen you can put through your body doing work without going into some um, anaerobic zone or some, uh, some uh, lactic acid buildup. We find over time that people who are running 13-minute miles are then running 12s. And as long as you hold steady, you do this for a couple of weeks, then you're doing 11s, then you're doing 10s, then 930s, <laughs> then 9s. And, and ultimately, people are doing 7-minute, seven, 30-second seven miles at 118 beats a minute. Now, when they go add in the layers of training that include work, weight work in the gym and interval sessions like that, the fact that, they're, that they can run 730s and be burning getting 95% of their energy from fat, which we know to be true based on the heart rate mm -hmm. uh, limit, when they start to raise their heart rate and they know they can race at 160 or 170 beats a minute, they're even, even it's linear. So as they're deriving, as they're increasing their speed, they're still deriving a greater percentage of their calories because it's all about the calories, as, as these guys say. They're de deriving a greater amount of calories from fat and relying less on stored glycogen. And what that means is, 
the, that the guy on either side of them that they're racing against, they're burning mostly glycogen at those high uh, heart rates and at those speeds. So now if I've trained this way and I'm good at burning fat, I'm, I'm not only sparing muscle glycogen, which is ultimately a limiter of, uh, of how fast I can go. I'm, I'm sparing, I'm even sparing, um, uh, hepatic glycogen. So my brain is functioning well, but it almost doesn't matter because I'm so good at burning fat that I'm, per, that I'm producing ketones and my brain is burning ketones. Now, a whole different hack that we talk about, which is the, um, the central governor theory of the brain. And that is, uh, that was promoted by Dr. Tim Noakes mm-hmm. years ago. And he said, you know, we did all this work on, on, on muscle glycogen. And we determined that the reason you hit the wall or the reason you bonk is because you're out of muscle glycogen. Well, in fact, even those people who have to withdraw from a race still have 150 grams of glycogen in their muscles. So it must be something else. And he determined that it was this, this, it was the brain. It was the brain was saying we got to shut down because we're running on fumes. And if we don't shut down, there'll be damage done. We'll, you know, we'll burn the engine out. So it was the brain that was telling the body to shut down based on low glucose. Well, if you can fuel the brain with ketones in a race and the brain's going, hey, we're great. We know how to burn fat. We're not burning that much glycogen. Uh, we don't need that much glucose for the brain, if any. So let's just keep going. This pace is fine. And we're seeing a lot of athletes, at the at, again, in the 100-mile running race uh, community are setting world records based on, I mean, for Zach Bitter to run like seven minute miles and derive 98% of his calories from, from fat proven wearing an oxygen setup, uh, an exchange setup in the, in the, in the lab. This is stuff that we thought was pure science fiction 30 years ago. Wow. There are more than a few endurance athletes who've contacted me who, who literally pour brain octane into whatever their sports beverage is that I just want to have some ketones when, I, when I'm in a yep. race, right? And exogenous ones as best as they can get them, even if they're already nutritional ketosis, the, the ones who are burning sugar and ketones. What do you think, though, for, for someone running a, a long-distance race, I mean, is there a time when, when, you know what, have a stinger gel, like have some carbs, have, have some white rice or, or whatever else? Or, or do you say, like, stay in ketosis the entire time and just, just never have carbs? Or is there like, like the end of the race burst? Like, like what's, what's your perspective on so, that? So we're Curious. still learning. We're still learning a lot about this. And one of the things we're learning is that you don't, you don't get out of ketosis by taking in some exogenous carbs in a race. Yeah. So there are some forms of carbohydrate. Um, you know, UCAN makes this super starch, which yep. is a very high molecular weight starch that basically drips into the bloodstream at a, at a very predictable rate. And so you can take in 30 grams an hour, uh, which is contributing to that glucose requirement as it may have in, increased over time if you, if you ramped up your effort um, and not shut off ketosis and not mm-hmm. shut off any of the other uh, metabolic processes. But, but I think what's really critical is sort of the understanding that the more time you spend training as a low-carb athlete, and that includes not just eating low-carb in the diet, but doing the, the actual training, spending the time um, uh, at the low levels of heart rate, and then building in the different uh, facets of maximum sustained power and so forth. The more, the more years you spend doing this, the more that metabolic machinery is like cast in stone. It's there. And so you don't, you don't lose your ability to burn fat because you, because you take in a, a gel pack. You don't lose your ability to, to produce ketones because you, you, you know, took in a, a, some form of a, of a low GI uh, carbohydrate source. 
Uh, and there, it may be that what we're arriving at is a combination because this is really about what I call fuel partitioning. It's like I've got, I've got an amount of output that I need to create. Let's say I'm tr- going to try and shoot for a world record and it's going to be a two hour marathon. Um, you know, and I know that I can only hold about 1600 calories worth of, of fuel in, in my glycogen tank because that's about 400 grams of glycogen. Um, I've got about 100 grams in my hepatic tank, in my liver tank that I can a- uh, allocate for, for brain functioning. I might not need that. But the rest of this is going to have to come from fat. So the more I can, I can, even if I'm running 442 a mile, if I can still get 60% of my calories from fat because of the way I've trained, and then the balance comes from, from carbohydrate, and then, the, and then if I do run out, I can still supplement with little... Again, that's where the carbohydrate, the exogenous carbohydrate comes in. Um, and it may be a combination of MCT oil and some exogenous carbohydrate later on. I think that's the exciting part about, about how to get to the next level of, of actual human performance is this, um, is this figuring out what the, what the secret formula is, how much of yeah. this, how much of that. It's going to be it's going to be really cool. It probably varies on a on a per person basis based on your genetics. By probably those are twenty percent wiggle Absolutely. room for each of those numbers, right? Absolutely, yeah. What What do you think about collagen? And I mean, you you know, I I sell collagen, and I'm not I'm not trying to promote that, but they call that uh, animal starch. Yeah, right. and I I think I made a mistake. I, I did a extremely high fat. Uh, sort of replicating the Eskimo diet thing as I was experimenting for for the Bulletproof diet before I, I, I wrote the book. For three months, I ate one serving of green vegetables a day, and the rest of it was fat and, and grass-fed stuff that you know could be right out of Primal Blueprint. Right. Uh, no, uh, no other uh, like dairy protein or any of that kind of stuff. And I got leaky gut, developed a bunch of food allergies. <laughs> like yeah. I got no tears, no mucus. Uh, in my sinuses, no mucus lining my gut, which is why I, I likely got leaky gut. Like it, it was, my sleep quality went away. Uh, like, like, like it was, it was not a good experiment. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder if it was because I wasn't using collagen at the time, because I wasn't getting that quote animal starch that Eskimos would get from eating connective tissue and, and boiled seal bones and whatever else. Yeah. But, but for people in extreme ketosis, doing endurance athletics, which is a burden on the collagen. Yeah. Uh, do, do they need that or should they just take exogenous carbohydrate to get the polysaccharides you need for covering cells of your immune system? Uh, it's, it's basically a question of, um, you know, do you get it from bones or bone broth or yeah. whatever? But if you just eat red meat, if you just eat the clean, you know, clean protein, the lean protein, that whole, that whole concept that yeah. uh, was ori- originally promoted by, the, the early paleos, you know, don't eat saturated fat and yeah. just eat clean, lean protein. Then you get you basically, you know, rabbit starvation. You get a, an imbalance ah. of certain amino acids and leaky gut is one of the, one of the side effects of that. Uh, so we know that collagen has a tremendous effect on gut health for mm-hmm. sure. Um, I started doing collagen because I have, uh, and I found out later when I had my DNA tested uh, by DNA fit that uh, my soft tissue was prone to, um, uh, injury, which it always has been. Oh, interesting. So okay. I started like I still play ultimate once a week, and I play two hours of really rigorous, hard sprinting ultimate frisbee, and uh, and my Achilles started hurting, and and it's I'm conscious enough at my age that I don't want to get injured 
So I'll back off. And by over supplementing with the collagen, the Achilles tendonitis went away. It was, it was actually tendinosis, which is a step ahead of uh, beyond tendonitis. So I'm a huge fan of, of, I take, in addition to our bars, I take a collagen, you know, a type one, type two collagen blend almost on a daily basis because I'm just so, uh, such a, such a huge fan of it. And I'm not, I don't have access to bone broth on a, you know, on a, on a regular basis. I, I actually travel with a 10 gallon steel pot full of bones that the TSA lets me bring it through. <laughs> like, it's just not even, yeah. it's just not going to work. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, for your Achilles, have you ever tried stem cells? Um, no, I have not tried stem cells. Um, you know, I think that that I, I'm very excited about that research. Uh, I know a lot of people who have uh, you know, knee issues. I know somebody doing, going through an MCL issue right now that's going to try stem cells. Uh, I've had friends with shoulder issues um, try it uh, with varying degrees of success. I think that the, the jury's out on, on pluripotent cells and, and this concept that you can somehow um, inject it into a knee and get a knee and not a, you know, and, and not a heart. I mean, it's, uh, it's a little, it's a little, too early for me to try stuff like that. If your Achilles gets worse, uh, my, my wife and I just went in and did uh, adipose derived and bone marrow derived stem cells, pretty much everywhere we could think of that ever had an injury. Yeah. Uh, like you, she has soft tissue uh, dispo- injury dispositions, and she had uh, damage to her Achilles tendon from many years ago. It always hurts when she hikes and stuff. Yeah, uh, She had the injection done, and it, it literally a month later, it, it's gone. And uh, same thing, she had a, a frozen neck since she was 10 years old. Like she couldn't turn her, her, her neck very far. Uh, and one of her shoulders was frozen from falling 30 feet out of a tree as a child. Mm. Literally two days after the injection, she had more range of motion than she's had as an adult. I, I was blown away. But these were our own living stem cells, not from some other source, not from Sure, the sure. No, and I'm familiar yeah. with the tech, the, yeah. some of the technology to harvest them. It's kind of, uh, I, I would be much more... Um, inclined to do the marrow derived than, than the fat cell derived, but, uh, still, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, so I guess the point is I got, I got the relief I sought from eating it, just eating (laughs) collagen. So there you go. Um, yeah. Now uh, let's, uh, let's talk some more about working out because we've all been taught, at least if if you're as old as I am or as old as you are, that, you know, after you exercise, you've got to load up on carbohydrates so you can replenish glycogen. Because you don't have glycogen, you'll be weak. Uh, But it was a a guy named Rob Fagan uh, in the mid-90s wrote a, he's one of the the first natural bodybuilders, uh, at least first that I I knew about um, of my generation. There might have been other ones. And he, uh, he wrote a lot about what happened if you ate protein after you worked out because you'd get a suppression of cortisol and an increase in growth hormone and testosterone. And sort of he positioned as a teeter-totter. And that really informed a lot of my early workout theories. But what do you think you should have after you work out? Yeah, so, um, you know, my, my strategy is um, I don't eat. I, I work out fasted and I don't eat for two hours after I work out, primarily because I'm not hungry. Um, primarily because I've gotten, I've gotten so good at burning fat that I wake up in the morning. I don't feel hungry. I'm not compelled to eat. Um, I advise my audience, if you don't feel like eating, if you're not hungry, why eat? Uh, you know, uh, so, so there's a, there's a whole new, I don't know if you saw a paper circulating a few days ago about, um, overnutrition. 
Yeah. Uh, this, you know, and, and uh, studies into overnutrition, which is basically even if you can put calories through and not gain weight, eating more than you should is probably not a good idea. Uh, yes, so, I would support that. And I, yeah. I did my experience, I did uh, 4,500 calories a day, between 4,000 and 4,500 for more than a year. Yeah. And I, I lost or maintained weight. I did not gain weight. I don't think it was necessarily healthy, but it was just astounding that calories in, calories out just simply didn't work. Yeah. Right. And I don't think it was a good thing to do, but I did it. Well, I don't think it was a good thing to do either, but yeah. it's, it's a good as an experiment. And that's, but, but, um, so back, to, first of all, back to the post workout meal. Yeah. So, there's two schools of thought, and one of the old school of thought was um, refill glycogen. You got this 45 minute window in which your body's prepared to to really ramp up glycogen resynthesis. But but if you look at your strategy, it's like okay, is that why am I why do I why do I even care about rebuilding glycogen really? Only if I'm going to go do this tomorrow am I am I really concerned about rebuilding glycogen today? So once again, you take a look at the historic the t- traditional hundred mile a week marathon runner, which I was. Uh, you're running an average of 15 to 20 miles a day, every day, without a day off unless you get injured or get sick. Uh, and so you had, to, you had to think in terms of refilling glycogen. That sort of made sense. That also kept you skinny because the converse of that is if, uh, if you do a hard workout, and particularly if you do like a leg day or some really some, – some workout that uses major muscle groups and does it um, you know, to, the, to, to max effort, you do get that pulse of growth hormone and testosterone – that is what you're seeking if you're trying to put on muscle. Mm-hmm. And taking carbohydrate in blunts that pulse. It blunts that pulse of testosterone and growth hormone. So I'm, as, as a 62, soon to be 63-year-old guy, you know, I want all the muscle mass that I can get. And so I want to I wanna take advantage of, all of that opportunity. I don't need to, refill it, to replenish glycogen because I'm not going to go hard tomorrow. In fact, I'm not going to go hard for four more days, right? right. So my glycogen stores will refill so that when I do get to a hard glycolytic workout or a weight workout four days down, down the road, my glycogen stores will be up to where they need to be. But the, the old post-workout refeed was based on, cause I'm going to do it again tomorrow. It was based on a, a flawed bottle and some flawed assumptions. And right. that also drove the behavior that then drove the, uh, it was kind of a chicken and egg thing with exactly. a bad outcome. Exactly. Well, well, speaking of testosterone, okay, you're you're 63, yeah, uh, and you you probably measure your testosterone levels, I would imagine. Um, I do. All, all biohackers do. At what point are you going to start taking exogenous testosterone, or are you never going to do it? No, no, I started about two years ago. Oh, you did? Okay, cool. See, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kudos to you. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that is such a valid anti aging strategy, and uh, uh, actually, I appreciate that you talk about that. I. I was on testosterone for eight years because I wasn't making my own. Like my levels right. were, were right. my mother had more testosterone than I did when I was 26. Right. Right. And it absolutely helped me to turn my biology back on. I'm not on testosterone right now because uh, my levels are, are where I wanted them to be when I finally right. dialed in all the stuff. But I'm, I'll be damned if I won't go on testosterone if my levels dip and I can't fix it with my diet. Like that's, yeah. that's how it's no, supposed I mean, to be. I, I think, you know, as I turned 60 and I started to, realize that I want to, I want to live an awesome life as long as I can. Yeah. Um, One of my best friends who I used to do triathlons with 30 years ago uh, is a preeminent anti-aging doc. And, you know, I sort of uh, respect what he said and he said, look, you know, why don't you, let's, let's just try this out, see how you like it. Um, You know, it's a hundred milligrams in the butt once a week. I mean, you know, it's not a big, not, not a big deal. And so for two and a half years, that's what I've been doing. And it's fine. It's part of my regimen now. 
Um, I got to tell you, I don't necessarily notice anything as a result of it, but um, I'm, I'm looking at those sorts of advantages going forward and there's no reason not to. And that's the, I mean, that's having done the research and the science. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't think there's any reason not to. And my wife's been doing, you know, bioidentical, um, you know, estrogen, um, progesterone, yeah. progesterone, testosterone manipulations for 10 years. So, uh, giving women yeah. testosterone might be more important than giving men testosterone. Yeah, <laughs> like it, it is so profound what, what the right levels do for women. Like yeah. it, it, it's really important. And uh, there, there's this, I think it's left over from like doping scandals with you know bodybuilders in the '70s using methylated testosterone uh, compounds that aren't natural. Like there's some sort of weird puritanical thing against it. Right. But I, I'm I'm planning, and I'm not joking about this. I'm planning to live to 180 years old. I, I think it's it's achievable given the change in. in According to Kurzweil, if you can make if you can make it to 2040 or 2045, you're good. Exactly right. It, it, <laughs> yeah. it depends, you know, if, if Ray's right or not. Yeah. I don't know, but it's something like that. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's it's doable. And it, I think he might even have his numbers wrong. At least if you're if you're fortunate enough, and if you if you could prevent enough damage at an early enough age, yeah, uh, maybe it's there. But that means that you will be on exogenous hormones at some point if your body's not making them, or you'll die. <laughs> like. Or you'll be downloading your consciousness into a machine. Which uh, is, <laughs> that, that, that's a fair point. I, I think it's already halfway into my iPhone if it just had yeah. more RAM, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk some more about brains since we just talked about downloading them. Uh, one thing that ketones can do is extend the career of an athlete. We're talking about extending life. What do ketones do for extending your athletic life? In other words, being able to compete into your 50s or something with ketones? Well, so we don't know yet because okay. we haven't had any real uh, proof, uh, any, any long-term studies of athletes who are at the elite level who were ketogenic uh, by plan uh, that had uh, undergone you know, extensive training and maintained a high level of, of, uh, of competitive output. So we don't know yet. Um, I suspect that what we'll see is that there'll, there'll be a greater longevity simply because this whole um, uh, energy pathway that we're talking about with fats and ketones is less reactive oxygen species yeah. generating than the sort of glycolytic, uh, glycogen, carbohydrate slash glucose uh, uh, pathways and that, that athletes have depended on for the last 30 or 40 years. And so when you see athletes who are 35 years old and they look like they're 55 years old. Part of it's because the amount of time they've been out in the sun, but part yeah. of it's just because the amount of oxidative damage that mm -hmm. they've done, that they've, you know, it's cross-linking, it's, it's uh, you know, acrylamide. I mean, it's, uh, uh, what's the Advanced glycation in products. A a yeah. AGEs. Right. I mean, it's uh, uh, Maillard reactions is what I was looking at. But, uh, yeah, there you, go. You, know, all, you know, all sorts of, um, of manifestations of an inefficient energy production system uh, that that ironically only is only available because we have a, a, a unlimited supply of carbohydrate. In right. other words, if we hadn't created, again, we get back to Jared Diamond and, and Cordain and agriculture. And, you know, it was, a, yeah. it was, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's the greatest mistake the human humanity ever, ever made, but the reliance on carbohydrate allowed people to train hard every single day uh, because they thought they had to train hard and because they had, had to refill glycogen. And, as a result, they, I'm one in one of these. I mean, I did so I did damage to myself. I'm paying the price today for the damage that I did 30 years ago. Um, so it's, you know, I, I think that we'll see 
that ketogenic athletes and people who are doing sickly keto, I'm not talking about staying in ketosis your whole life. I'm just talking about using, using sickly ketogenesis to build a better metabolic machinery to yeah. put through fats and ketones and carbohydrates and, and maximize uh, the, the energy output in a race. That's where it's headed. You added a key word there, cyclical ketosis. And that's yeah. exactly what I recommend in, in the Bulletproof Diet. Because when I did full ketosis for, for that period of time, I felt negative effects. But if, you, if I go out of it one day a week, you're like, okay, I'm going to eat a lot of rice today. Like it, it feels like I just have more power throughout throughout the yeah. week, or or if I do have fifty or hundred grams of carbs, I, I I still maintain that fat burning ability. That it seems to be different than than the you know sub twenty grams of carbs a day kind of crowd. I respect the guys who do that, but I don't feel good if I do that. Well, I, I respect the guys who do that, but but I like to eat a wide variety of foods. So yeah. I, I'm just you know again I'm back to not wanting to hurt. I don't want to suffer. You know the the new right. For two years now, the tagline of Primal Blueprint has been live awesome. You know, how do we how do we extract the greatest amount of pleasure out of every moment possible, which includes every freaking bite of food that yeah. I eat, I want it to taste good. Well, if I'm limiting myself to foods that are within a, a fairly narrowly defined ketogenic diet, and I'm excluding copious amounts of green vegetables that have been grilled or sauteed or steamed with butter or whatever, yeah. even if I'm a certain amount of, uh, you know, starchy inputs even if it's a taro chip with which to scoop some uh, guacamole, you know, I don't want to limit myself to yeah. that stuff. Agreed. Yeah. I, I had an interest. I'm trying to remember which audience this was. There goes. This is at Brendan Burchard's High Performance Academy. There's about 1,500 people in the room. They're all high performing people. And I said, How many of you, you just raise your hand, how many of you know about ketosis? Uh, and, you know, how many of you have been in ketosis? And I'd say 90% of the room raises their hand. I said, All right, how many of you are in ketosis now? Five people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah. uh, point made, right? It was, they all felt the benefits, but it was, it was too hard to do it and to travel to do all the other things, or they just didn't enjoy it because they wanted their wine or they, they wanted their whatever else it well, was. Well, Todd, Todd seems to be able to stay into ketosis and have his wine. Yeah, how does he pull that off? Uh, the, the Todd we're talking about is, is the Todd guy White. from Dry Farm Wines. Uh, Mark, you and I are both huge fans of, of the guy. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, no, so so I think yeah. ketosis is a great tool yeah. and it's a great training strategy. But I would suggest, I mean, I tell athletes, you know, spend two weeks in and and then hang out. You can still you can still be low carb. I mean, yeah. you can still, you know, to be in ketosis, you might have to be below fifty grams during the time that you're in ketosis. But you can you can move up to one hundred and twenty grams or one hundred and thirty grams a day of carbs and be and in that space be consuming plenty of vegetables and enough. Uh, fiber and enough other great tasting foods to not feel like you're sacrificing anything and yeah. also to not feel compelled to carbo load because just because you're out of ketosis. There's a nice little space that you can find yourself in where you're at a 100 to 150 grams a day and still be be utilizing all the metabolic machinery that you built when you were in ketosis. Yeah. So being in ketosis sometimes is really important. And it depends, you know, for an endurance athlete, one side of things. If, if you're, look, I'm running a business, I, I want my brain to work really well, it, it's probably a different frequency of ketosis, but it, it, for resetting hunger levels, resetting uh, your body weight set point, like ketosis has so many just useful things. Uh, what, what's the number? Like when you stick, a, you stick your finger and look at the blood ketone levels, what are the meaningful numbers for you? I, I get different answers to this question from different people. I mean, I think two is a meaningful number. 
I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not looking for fours and fours and fives, you know? I, I love two. Like two, two is a, definitely you're in nutritional ketosis. I think if you're, if you have cancer or something, you might want to get a lot higher than that. Yeah. But I don't think it's necessary. And, and for me, the, the magic number that, that, that kind of sets my brain free is 0.5. Yeah, which is subnutritional ketosis, which starts yeah. at 0.8, but yeah. 0.5 is where you reset your ghrelin and your CCK levels. And ghrelin's the hunger hormone, CCK yeah. is the satiety hormone. And when you reset both of those, all of a sudden you're like, oh, now I don't care about food, so I'm going to make healthier and more intelligent food choices because I'm right. not craving driven anymore. And right. for me, freedom from cravings is like one of those things that reduces suffering the most in the least amount of effort. Again, back to the whole concept here, which is to enjoy as much. Yeah of life as possible. One of those things that I, I find um, really compelling about w- the work that we do is it's the, it's a bad term, but the anorectic effect of a low carb diet of a, of a cyclical ketogenic diet. Yeah. It makes you, it, it really, it modulates your hunger to the point that you don't feel driven by food that you don't feel right. like, Oh my God, this was just a wonderful lunch. What's for dinner. You know uh, it's, it's, it's so freeing to so many people to be able to say, um, go into a restaurant, order order something or have something fixed at home, take seven bites and go, you know what? I think I'm done. I think I've had enough. Yeah. I think I don't need to eat anymore. And if I do need to eat anymore, I know exactly where to get some. Um, I've been talking a lot about this recently, but, you know, I had a uh, I had for most of my life, I was sort of guided by this this uh, criteria, which was. What's the most amount of food I can cram down my pie hole and not gain weight? What's the most amount of food I can eat and not throw up? What's the most amount of food I can eat and, yeah. and, you know, and not be uncomfortable? And I think a lot of people live their lives that way. And then you go to like Cheesecake Factory and you get a, yeah. you know, whatever the serving is, it's 1,600 calories or whatever, and you feel compelled to finish the plate. So a few years ago, I started thinking, well, you know, a lot of the world lives, a lot of the Western world, the, the developed world lives, lives according to that kind of mantra. How, how, like I run so I can eat. Why do you run marathons? <laughs> well, I run because I love to eat. Yeah. Seriously, dude, that's why you hurt that, yourself. That's sick. <laughs> that's just sick. Um, I love to eat too, but you know, yeah. I, I choose not to, to, to run marathons. So the converse of that is really to ask yourself, what's the least amount of food I can eat and maintain muscle mass and maintain energy and maintain great cognition and not get sick and yeah. most importantly not be hungry. Yes. And you find that it's not a lot of food. It's really that I, I probably eat 30% fewer calories now than I did even five or seven years ago when I I, I could maintain my weight eating eating that. I wouldn't gain weight, but I just find I don't need as many calories to to maintain because I've really dialed in my appetite. I really, I really understand when I'm hungry, when I'm not. And kind of, I guess the bad news is now I sort of feel guilty if I even slightly overeat. I go, oh, geez, I, I knew better than that. And, and slightly overeating for me is probably half the portion I would have eaten 10 years ago. It, it's funny you mentioned the anorectic effect of, of ketosis. because it, 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 Suddenly you're not driven by these cravings. About three years ago, there was a group in Sweden saying that bulletproof coffee causes anorexia. Uh, you know, Sweden is like one of the first countries to broadly embrace a, a high-fat diet, a high-saturated right. fat right. diet even. Right. And it, it was, I, I kind of just threw my hands up. I'm like, well, I, I guess if living without hunger equals anorexia, yep, like I'll own that. But what was going on is people were complaining that, they, well, well, those people don't have any hunger pains. 
<laughs> Therefore, they're bad people. Yeah, and yeah. The people. <laughs> it's like, come on, guys. It's called mild ketosis. Like, well, it's called being in control of your appetite. It's just, it's, yeah. you know, there's a big difference between refusing to eat because uh, you know you're trying to show your parents something and that you yeah. that you've got more control than they do versus just being so in control of your appetite. You go, you know what? I'm not hungry. I know what hunger looks like. I'm not hungry yeah. now. I don't need to eat now. I could because it's you know because my friends are eating or whatever. It's right. Well, all going out to lunch, but I'm but and I think that that's the single most empowering concept within the whole paleo primal um, you know bulletproof world. When when I was really fat, I I did not know the difference between hunger and a craving. Yeah, like I, I thought. It, at my core, those are the same thing. When you have to eat, you're going to die. You feel yeah. like you're going to die if you don't eat right now. And suddenly, to be at this point where, you know, I could eat, but like if I don't eat for another four hours, like, like I'm not going to lose my ability to think. I'm not going to have to lay down. I'm not going to bite anyone's head off. Like it, It's just going to be like one of those things. Like, like maybe I should scratch that itch. And for me, that was, as a former obese person, that was so damn liberating. And then to yeah. feel what it did to my brain, like... I, I don't care how my body looks as long as I can have that feeling because it's so much better than the way I used to feel, right? Well, and ironically, when you have that feeling, then your body starts to look better. It, it's like a free bonus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's pretty cool. Well, you're, you mentioned you're 63 uh, or 62, turning 63? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what else are you doing for anti-aging? I mean, I, I, for 10 years, I've run an anti-aging group. This is one of my, my passions. Yeah. And, and you do so much research. I have so much respect for you. You've got to be doing something more than just ketosis and testosterone for aging. What, what else is on the menu for you? Um, you know, uh, I'm doing, uh, I, I think like a 17-year-old. I mean, I, <laughs> nice. I, I literally surround myself with young people. And that's, that helps. It, I think it's the single most important uh, aspect to all this. So, you know, I get... I'm unapologetic about getting eight and a half to nine hours of sleep a night. Um, I'm, I'm, and I'm very good about that. I'm religious about that. I think th- sleep is, is, is critical for part of an anti-aging strategy. Um, I'm, I'm getting sun, uh, not as much as I used to, but I still get, I sp- spend some time in the sun. Um, I'm doing the low level training, um, with, that I now am coaching people to do. So now I'm doing it myself and, uh, like do a two hour stand up paddle the other day, Nice. Um, it's out, it's my time with nature. It's me- very meditative. I usually go out alone. Um, you know, the other day I went out and saw a whale it was probably, you know, nice. a half mile away, but it was just awesome to see that thing breaching. Um, so I, I'm, I'm able to, um, I, I do, I hike again, I, I hike alone. I, I, that's really my meditations when I work out in these, in these longer, uh, stretches, uh, play ultimate with, again, with 20 somethings and 30 somethings and feel like I can keep up with them. Uh, and so really most of it is attitude, I think, yeah. for me. You mentioned earlier, you know, heart rate variability as a measure of overtraining. And I, I, I've been advisor to the HeartMath Institute and a certified coach. And I use it as like a way to, to meditate more quickly. Right. Uh, do you do that sort of work with heart rate variability? Or are you more around basically measuring the health of your autonomic nervous system with it? So you Yeah, can so, so here's, here's the deal with me and HRV. So I know a lot about it, written a lot about it. It, it, it doesn't work for me, and I'll tell you why. Cool. I spent so much of my life training at a high heart rate that I damaged my heart. Uh. So I have um, PVCs. I have premature ventricular contractions. And this really started to manifest itself a couple of years ago um, in um, just skipped beats. So, but, it, but it wasn't just skipped beats. It was like every other beat or every third beat was skipped for an hour at a time. 
So I would get the most outrageously good HRV numbers. <laughs> so you're getting false numbers. Okay. I was getting false numbers. So I called our friend. Uh, I, I Roland, forget her name. Roland yeah. McCready or no, Debbie? The, the gal, the gal. Um, the Debbie, yeah. Yeah. And I just said, you know, what's, you know, I want to, I want to look into this. And she goes, well, you know, if you got PVCs, then, then the HRV programs, they can't, we can't work with it. We can't, we can't recognize what's going on. So, so, <laughs> okay. so, it takes you know, that off the table. So it's not life threatening. Yeah. It's just, it's just annoying. I have a skip beat that when it, when it skips, the ventricle overfills, and then so the catch up beat is a very forceful beat. Uh, that's that's a little little uncomfortable, and that changes the variability dramatically. Of dramatic, course. yeah, yeah. So, but you know, we we all have our our issues like that. I uh, this is going back a, a maybe three years or so. I spent a couple days at at uh, ten thousand feet elevation. Uh, had a few drinks. This was at the Summit Series at Summit Outside in uh, on Powder Mountain, and I flew straight from there on very little sleep. You know, stay up late partying to San Francisco, and I I did a shoot for uh, a video series I, I was doing, and I held plank pose on the Bulletproof Vibe. This is the whole body vibration platform I manufacture. Plank pose is hard enough to do for five minutes. When you're vibrating 30 times a second, it is a hell of a workout. And they're, they're trying to get the lighting and the camera angles right. I'm like, guys, you're kind of torturing me here. And, and I held this pose, I'm dripping with sweat. And then I flew home to, to Canada and refilled my thyroid prescription. I, I've been on uh, decreasing amounts of thyroid, but I, I did have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and I've gotten rid of, I, I'm probably down 70% of my thyroid meds, but I'm still on them. My prescription was compounded, and it was overfilled. So here I am, I end up getting an inflamed sternum, which causes horrible chest pain, if you ever had that, and I'm getting skipped heartbeats, which is what made me think about this, be from the thyroid medication. Yep. My wife's an ER doctor, and she's like, think you're going to the hospital to get an EKG now. And I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. Right? And it turns out it was one of those confluences. And, and you know, you just don't know. But apparently skip beats are way more common than I would have thought. Well, so here's how person. common they are. Um, yeah. In, in, the, in, the, in my generation of endurance athletes, it's like epidemic. Uh, okay. It typically manifests itself as AFib, atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. So in my yeah. case, what it is, it's a thickening of the, of the uh, ventricle wall. And when the, when the heart muscle thickens, um, it basically forms a little bit of scar tissue. And a couple of cells die, and those are cells that are innervating the, the beat, the heartbeat. So, um, or, or they may be prematurely innervating a beat because of some restriction. But the point is, when you put that amount of, of um, like I raise my heart rate to max levels three days a week for a good part of my life. And that's yes. why, why I'm writing this book or why I wrote this book, Primal Endurance, was to say, don't do this. <laughs> right. Not try this at home, kids. There's a way to do this. So the, the, the good news is um, it's not life-threatening. And, you know, I could go get an ablation. Mm -hmm. And they, they literally go in through the, through the leg. They can burn a couple of, of the cells that are causing the problem. They, they map them. They identify them. They burn them. Good as new. That kind of scares me. So I'm, I'm going to hold off on that for a while. Um, but I take a calcium channel blocker for it now, but, okay. but I go to the gym like today. Um, I rode for an hour at 118 beats a minute with zero, uh, you know, negative effect at all. And, and I, that's my number 118, you know, is 180 minus my age, 118. I held it and, and I'm, I'm more efficient at that 118 than I've ever been in my life. So, so even that... I'm even training according to my plan now, um, but paying very close attention to, to max heart rate stuff. 180 minus age holds no matter your age? 
Yeah, so it's a really it's it, it was okay. uh, developed by Phil Maffetone, who was one of the pioneers yeah. in this I in this him. whole area. And um, you know he's he's been he was Mark Allen's coach when Mark was the greatest triathlete in the world and won Ironman seven times. Um, and it, it's a it's a pretty cool uh, history of having worked with top athletes and proven that this method works, and then to arrive at this number. And again, we say it's it's your age one eighty minus your age plus or minus four or five beats based on some little boxes that you check off. Like I'm a lifetime athlete. I'm already fit to begin with, or I'm way out of shape and I'm in horrendous shape. And, you know, so the, the, the number shifts uh, either side of that number, but it's a pretty reliable number. Now you can, we can go to the lab and you can test it because what it is, yeah. is it's, is, is it's trying to arrive again, as I said, it's the highest number at which you can put the most amount of oxygen through and not be going into uh, any kind of lactic acid buildup. So it's the number at which you are burning mostly fat because we, we sort of determine that as an RQ, a respiratory quotient, based on yeah. oxygen throughput. Well, this is uh, such a fascinating conversation. I, I love being able to just uh, kind of geek out a little bit but not go so deep that people listening kind of get lost. And I, I really appreciate our conversation, Mark. And I'm looking forward to getting a, a chance to hang out at your next, uh, your next mayonnaise launch. <laughs> yeah. uh, you just came out with your new mayonnaise, uh, which is made out of real ingredients, which I, I appreciate. So uh, I missed your party for it, but uh, I, yeah, no, I appreciate it. Actually, paying. we now have uh, the original mayonnaise has been out 14 months now already. Um, and we'd had a chipotle lime mayo that we introduced recently. Uh, okay. Yeah. And uh, some salad dressings also based on avocado oil, the, uh, the healthiest of all the oils. So we're very excited about it. It's called Primal Kitchen. It's uh, most, most uh, whole foods. You can get it on Thrive Market. Uh, for sure. And uh, yeah. Beautiful. We have one more question on our interview. And if someone came to you tomorrow and said, like, Mark, I want to kick ass at everything I do, not just working out, what are the three most important things I need to know? What would you tell them? Um, well, number one, um, always, always, always the best investment you can ever make is in yourself. So whether that's investing in more education, investing in um, some skills, investing in a business that you've just created. Uh, that's the single greatest uh, piece of advice I could give anyone. That's really what's going to de determine the difference. Um, number two, I'd say um, uh, bear in mind that if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. So um, sometimes it feels like everyone's doing it and they're breathing down your throat. But if it was really easy, everyone would be doing it. So, yep. so just stay focused. And uh, those people who succeed in what in anything are the ones who persevere and even if it's not the greatest i you know the, the, even if they start off slow i just find like in real estate i have friends who gave up in real estate after two years but if you hang in there for four or five years i got the same same group of friends are making millions of dollars just because they hung in there and they were they were yeah. good at it you know um third thing and i just uh gave somebody this advice the other day if you have a business idea if you want to kick ass Make sure it's a good idea. <laughs> Don't just be passionate for the sake of being passionate, uh, but make sure it's actually a good business, and then get passionate as hell about it. The, that's very well said. Given, given all my time in Silicon Valley, I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Mark, I, I don't know if I even need to give out your URL because everyone knows about it, but marksdailyapple.com. Yep. Uh, any other uh, places people should go to find you? Uh, primalblueprint.com is the, is the e-commerce site where all of our products are sold. Yeah. And, uh, check out, uh, the primal kitchen line of food products. Beautiful. And you said you're at whole foods now. Yep. Awesome. Uh, we just got into whole foods as well. So when you're at whole foods, 
pick up some Primal Kitchen items, and while you're at it, pick up some of that Bulletproof stuff, and it's going to be an awesome day. Yes, it will. (laughs) If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Head on over and pick up a copy of Primal Endurance because you will learn something from this book, even if you're not an endurance athlete. I'll be really honest. I don't care about endurance athletics. Personally, it's not what I want to do with my life. But life is an endurance event, at least if you want to live to 180, it is. And the things you'll learn from reading this book apply way beyond uh, running a marathon or doing a 10K or running 100 miles, whatever you might uh, want to do. Uh, I think that there's something for everyone in the book, and I have great respect for Mark and Mark's work, and you will benefit from reading Primal Endurance. So pick it up on Amazon, head on over to Mark's website and pick up a copy of it. You will be glad you did. Have an awesome day. Cool. Great. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.